from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Lord, the writer of Second Chronicles says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God, first hear our prayers for the healing of this land, prayers that we make to you now in the silence of our hearts. Oh God, your word also tells us to pray, to intercede, the thanksgivings be made for everyone, to pray for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. And so God, we do just that. We pray for President Obama. We pray for President-elect Trump. We pray for Governor Deal and Mayor Reed. We pray for all elected officials and public servants in our state and across this nation. We pray that all who lead do so with humility and a heart that seeks to serve all people. May their leadership and authority be rooted in justice and righteousness. We pray for the prospering of this new administration for government at every level, so that good may be known and received in and for the world. And we pray for the people of these United States of America. May your perfect love cast out all fear. May your healing spirit cover our land and make us whole. May the economy function and be prosperous for everyone. May the dignity of work and a fair wage be realized for all people. May quality education be accessible for everyone. May affordable health care and affordable housing be available for all people. May peace and the absence of violence and terror, and may the presence of justice be known for all people. May life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness be guaranteed and protected for all people. And Lord, as your church, we are ever mindful of the words in Colossians 3. And so we pray them that we would be clothed as individuals and as your church, we'd be clothed with your compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, that we would bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, that we would forgive just as you have forgiven us. Above all, O Lord, clothe us with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed we were called in the one body. And Lord, teach us to be grateful and thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Help us to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in our hearts, give us the strength and the courage to 
to sing your songs of praise in this hour of worship. And in whatever we do, in word and in deed, make it so that we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of all. We pray this. Amen. Let us prepare our hearts for the worship of God. Pew Bible to Exodus 18, 5 through 23, which can be found on page 62 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came into the wilderness where Moses was encamped at the mountain of God, bringing Moses' sons and wife to him. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him. Each asked after each, the other's welfare, and they, sent, and they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law that all the Lord had done to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardships that had beset them on their way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses sat as a judge for the people while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. The task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they're going to go and the things they're going to do. You should also look for able men among the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain, Set such men over them as officers, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people, 
at all times. Let them bring important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people will go to their home in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. And from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we hear God's word this morning, let us pray. Everlasting God, break open your word for us this morning that in encountering your truth, our hearts might be transformed as we come to hear and believe your gracious promises for your people and all of creation. Amen. What is the church to do at such a time as this? Many in our congregation and in our country awoke Wednesday morning with optimism, filled with hope that the new administration will make changes that will make this country stronger, safer, and more prosperous. And yet many others in the same congregation and in the same country woke on the same morning with concern, filled with questions about what lies ahead for this great nation uncertain about how to explain this past year and a half of election cycle to their kids. What is the church to do at such a time as this? I must confess I'm not entirely sure. I do know that it is appropriate to engage such matters from a faith perspective, to analyze the tone and substance of political discourse in light of the gospel, and to hope and pray as a church for a stronger, and more unified nation. But I also know that the Bible does not give us a blueprint for how exactly we are to be at such a time as this. The Old Testament gives us prophets who publicly challenge rulers of the age in the face of injustice and inequality. But that same Old Testament also gave us priests who largely stayed out of the political arena and instead brought healing and comfort through the regular rhythms of worship. The New Testament gives us John the Baptist, that fiery and fierce figure who challenged openly the powerful and the privilege of the world. But the New Testament also gave us Paul, who in the midst of a political turmoil in, of the first century CE, called on Christians to be citizens of heaven not citizens of this world. So friends, I ask, what is the church to do at such a time as this? 
In the city of Bethany, just west of Jerusalem, there once lived two sisters, the one named Martha and the other named Mary. Their story in many ways is a study of contrasts. On the one hand, there's Martha, the older sister, who scurries about in the, in the kitchen consumed with the many preparations for Jesus' visit. And on the other hand, there's Mary, the younger sister, who settles in at Jesus' feet and basks in his presence and hangs on his every word. From our littlest uh, ages in the church all the way up through adult Sunday school, we have been trained to see these two different approaches as a clear-cut lesson. Mary gets it right. Martha gets it wrong. Many have heard echoes in this story of Luke's other tale about contrasting siblings. Like the prodigal son, Mary is the faithful disciple who has chosen the better part. And like the elder brother who stays at home, Martha is distracted and worried about getting things right. This is the normal interpretation of this story. And I must confess, I've never loved this interpretation of the story. And that's in part because I'm a Martha. And I come from a long line of Martha's. My grandmother on the maternal side, Florence Palladino, was a four-foot-eight whirling dervish of an Italian old lady who could dominate a kitchen like no one's business. She could out Martha, Mar Luke's Martha, any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And I've inherited a little bit of that myself. But this morning, I want to invite you to see this story in a slightly different light. Rather than seeing one sister is good and the other sister is bad, what if we saw both of these sisters without judgment as two different models of discipleship? Both sisters are good. Both sisters are faithful. But they have different ways of being in the world and being with Christ. Both approaches, the Mary approach and the Martha approach, both approaches have their weaknesses and both approaches have their strengths. But both are reasonable, well-meaning ways of being a disciple in this world. Though this text has nothing at all to do with politics, I believe that the models of discipleship that we find in Mary and Martha just might offer us two concrete and hopefully helpful ways to think about what the church is to do and to be at such a time as this. First, there's the Martha way. I must admit, seeing Martha as a model of a disciple is quite difficult, in part because, because as I've said, we've been conditioned to see her in a negative light. But I think we too easily dismiss Martha. We too easily fall back on assumptions about her character and her motives that aren't really in the story. We fail to extend Martha a measure of charity that the gospel calls us to extend to everyone. And maybe this, in its own right, is a lesson to be learned at such a time as this. In welcoming Jesus into her home, Martha is faithfully following ancient codes of hospitality. Her many tasks were intended to care for and honor the guest that was in her, her home. And this was a sign of virtue. In Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah do something remarkably similar as Martha in our text. They go out, they welcome three strangers in, they prepare a meal, 
and they are praised by God for their hospitality. And so too should we praise Martha for her hospitality. Further, neither Luke nor Jesus actually criticizes Martha for the nature of her work in this text. In fact, in the Greek, Luke describes Martha's many tasks as uh, diakonia, a term that could be used to refer to any sort of service, uh, but throughout the rest of the New Testament is used consistently to mean ministry. The apostles and the disciples carried out the same sort of service for Christ. Luke leaves no doubt. We are to see Martha as a faithful deacon, a faithful minister of the gospel. So as a gracious host and a devoted deacon, Martha's model of discipleship is one of action. She is driven by an acute awareness of the urgent need of the moment. Jesus, God's anointed, had come to visit her. She doesn't form a committee to explore possibilities about what to serve for dinner. She doesn't circulate a congregational survey to determine when the proper time was to serve dinner. There was work to be done, and Martha jumped right in. While there's nothing, again, political about the situation at hand, it's easy to see Martha in the image of an Old Testament prophet. As with Amos and Jeremiah and many others, there's an urgency to Martha's actions. Something must be done. This is not a time for compromised convictions or equivocation. It is a time to stand up and to speak out for this day. Jesus, God's beloved, had come to her home. At such a time as this, the church might take a cue from Martha. Now, perhaps more than ever, there's a need for the church to stand up for justice to advocate for the marginalized, to speak truth to power, to say no to even the, a hint of sexism and bigotry, whatever party it might come from, to mobilize through protests, to write op-eds for the paper, to lobby for change. The church might take a cue from Martha in all of these regards. And I suspect that at least some of you this morning came to church with a Martha mindset, with a Martha heart, and I want you to know that there is space for you here in this congregation. Your voice matters. We hear you, and we are with you. Thanks be to God for your witness and for your way of being a disciple. But even us Marthas must be aware of the potential pitfalls of this approach to following Jesus. Luke's story is quite clear about this danger. The danger for a Martha is feeling resentment towards those whose faith manifests in different ways. Listen to Martha's question to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. It was not so much that Martha had too much to do and needed help. When Martha says, my sister left me to do all the work, the word used in Greek can also mean abandon and forsake. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus utters on the cross in that scene in the Gospel of Mark where he says, My God, my God, why do you forsake me? Martha says, My God, my God, why has Mary, my sister, forsaken me? 
Martha feels abandoned and isolated in her faithful devotion. In that moment, with the weight of a righteous cause weighing heavily on her shoulders, she saw any other way of following Christ as an act of accommodation. For Martha, her single-minded devotion to the Lord, which was her virtue, that single-minded devotion to the Lord led to a single-minded understanding of what it meant to be a disciple. This is the unintended consequence. This is the danger of being a Martha at such a time as this. But Martha's way is not the only way, for in Luke's tale of two sisters, there's also a Mary. We typically think of Mary as the protagonist, and not without good reason. At the very end of the story, Jesus himself says, Mary has chosen the better part. But this translation is a little bit misleading because the Greek simply says Mary has chosen the good part, not the better part. Martha's part was good. Mary's part was good. It wasn't a competition. Both ways are ways of discipleship. Mary, like Martha, knew that there was much good work to be done in preparation for Jesus' visit. Mary, like Martha, knew that these many tasks were meant to honor their guest. But Mary's devotion to Jesus manifested in a different way. Instead of imitating Martha's hospitality and ministry, Mary takes a seat by Jesus' feet. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus' closest followers sitting and gathering at his feet. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that, that this posture was the most recognizable posture of a disciple in all of the New Testament. No doubt, some gathered at Jesus' feet to learn and to study. Others probably gathered at Jesus' feet to be touched and healed. Others probably gathered at Jesus' feet to be forgiven and to be comforted. Whatever the case was, this was Mary's home base at Jesus' feet. In fact, the only other time that we encounter this Mary in all of the canonical Gospels, she's also at Jesus' feet. In John 12, we find Mary at Jesus' feet, breaking open a costly jar of perfume and anointing the Messiah in the last week of his life. If Martha's discipleship is driven by the urgency of action, then Mary's discipleship is driven by the promise of presence. In a model of a priest, Mary withdrew withdraws from her surroundings and all that was going on in the kitchen. And she entered this holy and intimate space at the feet of Jesus. In the midst of a cacophony of voices and opinions, Mary leans in and hears Jesus say, be still and know that I am God. There at Jesus' feet, hope can be rekindled care can be received. It is a place where one can be without anxiety and be without political agenda and be without clear answers to the world's problems. And so at such a time as this, I think the church can take a cue from Mary. Now, perhaps more than ever, we need to be reminded that while we might be immersed in politics, our faith compels us to engage a world beyond politics as well. For there are truths and ideas in Scripture that orient our lives and transform our hearts that aren't fully present in, our, in either party and don't hinge on Tuesday's results. 
Perhaps more than ever, we need to be reminded that the church is a place where individuals can come to be at Jesus' feet, to worship, election or no election, expecting to encounter God's word and be transformed in light of his love and his truth. I suspect that at least some of you this morning come to this place with a merry mindset. There is space for you here. Your voices matter. We hear you and we're with you. Thanks be to God for your witness and for the way you are a disciple of Christ. But here again, us Marys must be mindful of the potential weaknesses of her model of discipleship. Luke is less clear about this. Luke does not have a sharp word for Mary, but it's not hard to imagine that if Mary is not careful, if she continues to withdraw from the world, to dwell at Jesus' feet, she at might, one point might drift into inaction and complacency. You see, at the feet of Jesus, the world is small. There are no political parties at the feet of Jesus. There's not poverty or discrimination or racism or uh, tax policy or, or trade agreements. There is no fear or bitterness at the feet of Jesus. We need these places, perhaps more than ever before, we need to withdraw. I mean, we need to have a place of comfort and care. But it's easy to forget that the space at Jesus' feet was never intended to be a permanent residence, but only a resting place. If we linger too long, our faith can become disconnected from the world. We can be lulled into spiritual isolation. Concern for piety and liturgy can leave us indifferent to the fact that our call to discipleship includes the daring work of leaving that holy pit place and going out to engage a world that is broken. That's the danger of being a Mary at such a time as this. Martha and Mary, each give us a model of discipleship. Martha's model is one of action, driven by the urgency to redeem and restore the world in light of God's justice. Mary's model is one of attention, driven by the promise of healing and wholeness that comes in the intimate space of worship. Martha offers us a voice of protest, her gift is the unwillingness to compromise, the boldness to advocate for those in need. Mary offers the posture of a disciple, and her gift is the ability to focus on the presence and worship of God even as the world around us is in chaos and tumult. The good news, friends, is that in this story, Jesus has room for both women. At such a time as this, we too need to have room for both Marys and Marthas in our pews. We need to create space for those who arrived this morning looking to stand up and speak out against what they deem to be insensitive political discourse. But we also need to create space for those who arrived this morning looking to encounter God's word and his transformative spirit, all without reference to politics or elections. At such a time as this, we need to be a church where there is space for both Democrats and Republicans. Tony and I and the whole pastoral team hope that this is especially true of First Presbyterian Church. We are not a blue church, and we are not a red church, and I don't even think we're a purple church. 
We are a church of Christ, called to be God's ambassadors of peace, love, and justice. This call will lead some of us to be Mary's, and this call will lead others of us to be Martha's. Thanks be to God that Jesus has room for both. Amen.